0: I want to invite you to listen to these great words. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. If there's one thing that Jesus is not... It's a surprise ending. And all you need to do is read the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament. I can even revise that and and say, all you have to do is read the first verse of the first chapter of the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament, and you'll see he's not a surprise ending. When you see the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, it's in in essence, verses 1 to 17 is a summary of the whole Old Testament. That God has had a plan all along and that the plan has been unfolding. We might call it the drama of redemption. And so the genealogy is there so that we can see that Jesus fits in on purpose. No surprise ending. Its centerpiece is Christ. He is the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. He is the one who is central to the whole thing. He is the apex. He is the punchline. He is the fulfillment of the whole thing. Not a surprise ending. Matthew 1, 1 to 17. We looked at it last time. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the birth narrative, which is in verse 18 and following, which plays such an important role. But keep in mind, as we read one eighteen and following, following, it's all to show that this is, in fact, what history has been waiting for. This is all part of the plan, and Christ is central to the whole, the whole thing, the whole thing. So if you would, let's go ahead and read together verses 18 and 25. I'll read aloud. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And now for a deeper dive, okay? There's your outline this morning. It's a deeper dive. No points. Sometime I might have six points, but you'll have to listen carefully if you're my kids at least. But... Let's look at the details more closely and let's build a little bit of enthusiasm if we haven't had it already because when you read the opening words, you ought to be enthusiastic. Okay? It's it's meant to to create enthusiasm. Verse 18, when you read the first sentence, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Yawn. No, no yawning. (laughs) The, The birth of Jesus Messiah... The, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And maybe it helps us to see the, 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 the need for enthusiasm if we read it that way. And we read the birth of Jesus Messiah. Because we're just... Christ is the New Testament word for the Old Testament word. Messiah. It means anointed one. And, and there have been many messiahs in the Old Testament. Every, every king, every legitimate king of Israel was a messiah. Messiah anointed by God, symbolic of blessed by God, ceremonially, uh, officially installed as king. And here, here we have the birth of Jesus, Messiah, ultimate Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, ultimate king. What does a king do if they're a good king? A good Messiah, a good anointed king, what do they do? They protect the people, They provide for the people. They're kind and gracious. They're not um, some sort of um, power mongers in it for themselves. No, they provide, they protect, they deliver, they save. Okay, all of that's wrapped up in what a legitimate king, a legitimate Messiah, a legitimate Christ would and should be. Here we have the birth of the ultimate deliverer, protector, provider, anointed one. Okay, so here, here we have the birth of the one who had been long ago promised, who would come in the line of David. We learned about it last week in the genealogy. We even read 2 Samuel chapter 7, known as the Davidic covenant, where God promises to David that he would have an offspring who would rule and reign forever. Okay? How does that happen? Right? When, when you read that and you read 2 Samuel 7 and you learn all of this and you go... However in the world, somebody in the line of David is going to come and they'll, how does somebody rule and reign forever? I mean, there's this problem in the world called sin and the wages of sin is death. And that, that would be seemingly impossible. How? How is it going to happen? Sort of reminds me in my mind about the priests in the book of Hebrews. And the author of the book of Hebrews talks about, you know, there's just one problem with the priesthood. It's a glaring problem. Everybody should notice it. The priests do their priestcraft or priestly duties. That sounds nicer. And they keep dying. I mean, even, even the priesthood itself should show you there's a problem with the priesthood. We, we need an ultimate priest, an, an ultimate sacrifice who, who won't die. Well, it's similar when it comes to the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. We've got to have a Messiah, Christ, anointed one, king who doesn't die. Ah, here we're going to have it. We're going to have it in Jesus. So we have the birth of the one who's going to fulfill the Davidic covenant, the birth of the one who's going to be able to live and rule and reign forever. Huh, I'm intrigued. I'm hooked. If you're not, check your pulse. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, really, it's the, oh, really? Kind of moment when we read verse 18. Uh, uh, Seriously? So that also gives me an opportunity to remind you what we read next should be extraordinary. Okay? Okay. If it's just another, another person in the line of David, doesn't need to be extraordinary. But what we, what we read next, it has to be extraordinary because to rule and reign forever, it, it, you have to be an extraordinary one. So pointing out the obvious, I hope. And now we have the behind the scenes look because we're saying, how could this be? Here is the answer, right? How about verse 18 when we keep going? Where it says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. One word to label that is, that's extraordinary. That, that's different. <laughs> it's meant to be seen that way. It has to be different because he has to be different. So there's no trying to splain this away by some sort of natural means because it's not supposed to be natural. It's supposed to be supernatural. That's kind of the whole point. Betrothed. Some of your, some of your translations might say engaged. That would capture at least the idea. Uh, traditionally, maybe up to a year, they're, they're engaged. But let's, let's have engaged with, with legal binding to it. That's why he's called her husband, even though they're not together yet. Uh, that's why there's a divorce, even though they're not married yet. Betrothal. So legally binding engagement, serious kind of engagement. That's what's going on here. Mary is betrothed to the right man, according to the lineage. Even according to what we're going to hear, he's called son of David, and for D- Jesus to be the forever ruling, reigning fulfillment of the Davidic promise, he's, he needs to be in the Davidic line. So we have Mary betrothed to the right guy. Needs, he needs to be in this, uh, a son of David, in the line of David. But he's not the father. And that's a real problem if you're Joseph, at least on the face of it. She's with child. But we have the explanation. She's with child from the Holy Spirit. That is to say what? That is to say, miraculous. That is to say, God miraculously has worked. Notice how different it is from the the pagan gods who have their sexual fulfillment and desires met through having sex with women. No, this is a supernatural conception. There's There's no biology involved other than supernaturally having her be pregnant. So Joseph doesn't know that at this point. Mary's already been told. But Joseph didn't get copied on the email, okay? But do listen to what Mary was told, because it kind of helps us fill in the picture a little bit. So this is Luke chapter 1. Luke 1.30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Literally, you have found grace with God. Grace is something given to sinners, a good gift given to sinners, and she's been given maybe one of the greatest gifts other than salvation itself. And verse 31 says in Luke 1, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. See, I wasn't making it up. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel... How how will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Different, distinct, unique, the Son of God. But given that Joseph doesn't know this yet, let's keep reading our text. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph... Being a just man or a righteous man, same word, a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So minimizing the shame. He loved this woman. Depending on circumstances, I mean, there could be very severe penalties involved as people who are part of the nation of Israel. He loves her, doesn't want shaming. So we're going to break off this official engagement and there's a divorce. Then it says in verse 20, but as he considered these things, I wonder how long he considered these things. As he considered these things, as he molded these things over, behold, a favorite word from Matthew to to, to spice things up, to enliven things, because this is something big that's about ready to happen. So behold, an angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. My question for you, is that loaded or not? I think it might be loaded. It wasn't like, you know, Joseph walked around town and everybody said, Joseph, son of David, Joseph, son of David, Joseph, son of David. He was in the line of David. But I think the angel of the Lord on purpose is saying, Joseph, oh, a little bit of a reminder, son of David. Now, that doesn't mean Joseph was quick on the uptake, Right? But if you're a son of David, you remember that there was a promise made to David that one would come in his line who would rule and reign forever. Just, just a little reminder, maybe by calling him Joseph, son of David. And whether whether or not he caught on or not, we're we're seeing the, the connections, because we just read the, the, the genealogy. This is supposed to happen somehow, and I'm gonna tell you how it's gonna happen. Do not fear could be translated, do not hesitate. Based upon the grammar, grammar experts tell us that the intent is never hesitate. So whether it would be now or even into the future, from here on out, you know what? This should be settled business. Don't ever hesitate. Don't ever be afraid to move forward with this. To take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, as we're going to see the woman you're betrothed to is still a virgin, is what we're going to see. And here's how things are going to go. Verse 21. And she, excuse me, she will bear a son... Not because they check the ultrasound. This is pre-ultrasound. Okay. This is, this is how things are going to be. This is how things are because we're talking about supernatural ability. She will bear a son and you shall call his name. Stop. Just stop there. I'm super rude. I have a reputation for rudely interrupting the Bible. I know. I'm sorry. But just stop there for a minute and let's at least appreciate the fact You, Joseph, son of David, shall call his name. It's on purpose, and and I'm in good company saying this. You're going to be so accepting of her as your wife that that baby who is not biologically yours, you, Joseph, are going to name. And at that time, in that culture, from what books tell us, it's an act of acceptance. There's going to be an official naming, a declaration by the father. It's a legitimate child, and I affirm the child as my own, and I will name him. She will name him as well, if we looked at the other texts. It's not a sexist thing, so just calm down. (laughs) He's affirming the child, okay? I thought one commentator put it, Helpfully, this is Leon Morris. By giving, the name Joseph, by giving the name, Joseph officially accepted the child. This gave the child the status, status of descendant of David. As with God naming Israel, like in Isaiah 43, verse 1, thereby Jesus' place in the genealogy is explained. God has ordered this engrafting. Hmm. Okay, now let's get back to the text. He's going to name the child. And you, this is verse 21. This is the best part, by the way, I think, if you're voting for best part, so you don't want to miss this. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he, even the grammar puts the he with emphasis in the order. For he, as in for he and no other. For he will save his people from their sins. And here's where I do have an outline, just to keep my own mind straight. At least bullet points. Because this is, this, is, this is gold, okay? I mean, this, this is what you came for, even if you don't know this is what you came for. I mean, 1, 121 is, is, is gold for so many different reasons. And I have enough reasons, at least stored away, we could be here till the Christmas Eve service. But I'm just going to share a handful of them with you. Name Him Jesus, because He will save His people from their sins. That is gold, because it's telling us that Jesus is the ultimate Joshua. Yeah. He's the ultimate Joshua. It's the equivalent to the Hebrew name Joshua. Yahweh is salvation, the unique God of Israel. Yahweh is salvation. That's what Joshua means. Jesus, New Testament. Joshua, Old Testament. Jesus... It's like naming him Joshua. You might think, that doesn't seem very exciting to me. I would encourage you to be excited. (laughs) Joshua has a reputation. Joshua actually has a good reputation for someone who is familiar with the Bible. Joshua wanting to obey God's word, committing to obey God's word, right? Wanting to be brave on behalf of the people, someone who trusts God uniquely. Joshua's got some pretty high marks when you read Joshua. Not perfect, but really a standout. Name him Joshua. And we're going to see throughout Matthew's gospel account If you you think Joshua was a pretty good guy, and I do, you ain't seen nothing yet. Jesus is the ultimate Joshua, okay? He's the ultimate Joshua. Now, there have been times in my Christian life where I've hesitated to say such things. I've had people tell me, you shouldn't say such things like that because it's reading too much into the Bible. You shall name him Joshua. That's what it says. It's the same word. It's the, it's the same, same label, but using the name Jesus because it's the same meaning. So I'm going to be so bold as to say the next time I read Joshua, I'm going to think about Jesus. I think you might want to do that too. Oh, and by the way, that's how Christians have read the Bible for a long, 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 long time because they used to think, Christians used to think this, gather around the fire, I'll tell you a story. <laughs> Christians used to think that the Bible was inspired by God, the whole thing. And Christians used to think that God was sovereign and had a plan for all of human history. I know, I'm pushing it here, you know. We're in church. And Christians used to think that before Genesis 1-1, God had a son second person of the trinity and Christians used to think that Christ is the center of everything so are you with me so before the old testament even there is a son and all along according to Ephesians 1 it's going to center all of human history and fulfillment is going to be found in Jesus and then came the enlightenment right enlightenment enlightenment Heard of that before? Some good things came as a result of the Enlightenment. But bad things happened to the Bible with the Enlightenment. Because, let me over oversimplify, we'll just get rid of God and all things supernatural. And then Christians started learning how to interpret the Bible from Enlightenment scholars. And we're going to just pretend like Jesus is the surprise ending. And we're not going to read the Old Testament thinking about Jesus because we've learned good hermeneutics from enlightenment scholars who don't believe in the sovereignty of God who don't believe in inspiration who don't believe Christ is the center of the whole thing and he certainly isn't the eternal son now I'm poking fun here to make hopefully a good point he's the ultimate Joshua I'm going to read the whole book as a Christian book because he's the eternal son It's amazing and awesome. He's the one. He's the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. Absolutely amazing. Amazing. Here's another reason why this is gold. It's gold because Jesus is the ultimate savior, saving people from their biggest threat. Notice what it says in our verse. What's our our biggest threat? Their sins. He's the ultimate savior. All good kings are supposed to be saviors, right? Right? They're supposed to protect their people. The word savior means deliver, right? They're going to they're protect, they're going to deliver, they're going to free them from bondage and oppression and slavery and all of those things we see examples of. And so there have been many saviors, lowercase s. And here, after all the genealogy and all of the history and all the ways God has delivered his people, it was all meant to prefigure and see Christ as the ultimate savior because he's going to save his people from their biggest problem not their external enemies he's going to save them from their sins it's it's so good it's it's such, it's such it's so good he's the one we've been waiting for we've been violating god's law all along and now look by the way this also is gold because it clues us in on how to read the whole book right? So so let's not not read Matthew like it has a surprise ending. Let's not read the Bible like it has a surprise ending, but let's not read Matthew like it has a surprise ending. Like, oh, look, he provides salvation. Who would have thought it? I just thought we were supposed to read the narratives to learn how to be better people. No, no, Matthew under inspiration, right? Under inspiration is, is showing us, telling us how to read the whole book. From the very start, his name is Jesus. So every time you hear Jesus or see Jesus in the, in the text or whatever it is, and it's all about him, you're thinking, he's the one who's the Savior. He's doing what he's doing because he's the Savior. So for example, this will be a good one. It's easy. I say it too often. I know. Sorry. But for everyone else's sake, when Jesus is tempted in Matthew chapter 4, What we're not going to do is say, okay, everybody, now the most important thing we learn is that um, here are four steps for overcoming temptation. And so quote the Bible, you know, see, well, I'll say you should do that. It's good to overcome temptation. You should quote the Bible. You should know the Bible. I'm, I'm there. But that's not why it happens. He came to save his people from their sins, not give us examples on how to overcome temptation. Right. Oh, and you know what else? Uh, that's interesting. He's in a garden. Uh, hmm. There's a clue. Uh, not only is he in a garden, uh, he's tempted by the devil. Uh, I think we've seen that before. Yeah, because he's as Second First Corinthians fifteen would say, he's the last Adam. Okay. And so we're we're going to read the whole gospel account. Okay. We're going to read the whole gospel account, the temptation. Oh, that's because he's representing us, because he came to save his people from their sins, and he succeeds where the first Adam failed. Oh, it's going to be great. And then I'll say, you should overcome temptation too if you're in Christ. But isn't it great to know that he overcame temptation ultimately as a representative for you? Oh, man, I want to preach the whole book. We could be here longer. It's going to be amazing. It is going to be amazing. It's also going to be a good corrective. So we're going to read it in that light. It's also going to be a good corrective when we, when we look at this verse. He came to save his people from their sins. It's a good corrective for those who say, well, you know, the Bible, the main focus of the Bible is not redemption. And I say, oh, Really? Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And he's connected to all the Old Testament history before him and all of those things and the, the, the fulfillment is found in him. And what did he come here to do? He came here to save his people from their sins. And by the way, because he does that, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says, so that he's he, he was risen from the dead, right? He's victorious in his act of redemption, that in everything he might be preeminent. So the reason Jesus is preeminent in everything is because he came to redeem. He came to save his people from their sins. Let's find another nugget of gold in here. Jesus didn't come to make people savable. He didn't come to make people savable. And sometimes in our minds, we massage what it means and we read into it. And we, we... Jesus is better than that. Stop believing in that Jesus. He came to save his people from their sins. It's amazing. It's amazing. The angel says, name him Jesus. And since the angel wasn't an Arminian, he didn't say because he will make all people savable. And he didn't want Jacob to be an Arminian either. No, he came on a rescue mission to make everyone rescuable. No, it doesn't say that. Jesus is better than that. I used to believe in that Jesus. I've repented. He came to save his people from their sins. He came on a rescue mission and guess what? Nobody left behind. He didn't do a college try. Nobody left behind that he came to save. He came to save his people from their sins. The first Adam didn't come and make people sinnable. Cosmic failure. Cosmic success. Let's go on. There's even more. Jesus came to save his people. Came to save his people. Some people say, that well, that's the Jews according to Matthew. You might want to look closer. It's half right. Give yourself half credit about 50% is failing. Am I having too much fun? Are you guys okay with this? <laughs> I'm trying to convince you, okay? Hopefully by the, not just the powers of persuasion, but by the power of the Holy Spirit through God's word, the, 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 the straightforward text, that Jesus is, is, is all that. He should have preeminence in everything, including in your life. He came to save his people. The Jews, Yes. The lineage that we saw in chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, definitely includes Jews. Okay? It definitely includes Gentiles. It includes men and women. It, inc- it includes all different kinds of people, all different kinds of sinners. And not only that, so we have the whole book bracketed by chapter 1, chapter 28. I mentioned this last week, and we go and t- make disciples of who? All nations. That's even tied back to the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promise. Through Abraham, God is going to bless all the families of the earth. It's also, the the word is used, all the nations. That's in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. If you're tied to the Abrahamic covenant, it's for Jews and Gentiles. And so that's how I will read, he came to save his people, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, from their sins. To deliver them, to give them freedom. Here's how I'm going to interpret that because we all interpret it somehow. He came to save his people. Who are his people? His people are everyone, would include everyone who would ever believe. And that would tie us to Abraham because he's the father of the believing according to the Old Testament and according to the New Testament. He came not to make everyone savable. He came to save his people from their sins. Oh, so good. I think of John chapter 10. He laid his life down for his sheep and he said, I will lose none of them. It makes me want to sing my mom's favorite song Victory in Jesus, not potential in Jesus. Made us all savable. What the heck? He's the Savior who saves, He's victorious. It's amazing. And you know something else I didn't tell you earlier on? I wanted to tell you this at the beginning. Uh, I joked last week and said, I'll do it in the second service, which we don't have anymore. So, you know, you win every argument later when you're by yourself. So my next sermon when I preach this text is going to be awesome. I wanted to, to, to get you even more engaged at the beginning so you'd be more likely, likely to listen. And I forgot, but I'll do it now. If you are a believer in Jesus, Okay. If you're trusting in Jesus, you're in this text. If he came to save his people from their sins, you're in Matthew 1. And I'm not just trying to make you feel good. If you're trusting in Jesus, your Savior came for you. Everyone who would ever believe would include his people. So now what I want you to do, I want you to read the whole gospel account, not in a self-centered, you know, stroke my ego, I have such good self-esteem kind of way. I want you to read the whole gospel account thinking that Christ is doing what he's doing for you. And I'm not just trying to blow fancy smoke. I'm all for criticizing our self-centeredness in reading the Bible, right? uh, One of my former professors was Sinclair Ferguson, and he talks, he criticizes the American evangelical church because we read the Bible like a Where's Waldo book, right? And we're Waldo. Oh, what does this mean to me? Where am I in all this? And where am I here? Oh, I just don't have my devotions here. It's all about me. So I'm with him in the criticism. But this is not the place for that. Jesus is going to do everything that He does because He's on a rescue mission that's successful for His people. And if you're a believer, you are part of His people. I love that. I love that. That's why we're going to study. It's why we want to dig in. It's why we want to do the deeper dive. Tell me more. Tell me more about my Savior. Tell me more about how great He is. Tell me more about how He's not going to leave me behind and neglect me. And He is... An accomplished one. So good. So good. Right? We're going to have fulfilled talk. Plan. Purpose. It's wonderful. Just one more thing just to, to answer for, uh, for you if you have the question. What about all the people in the Old Testament? some of you don't have this question but some of you are new enough to the Bible and this haunted me for quite a while as a new Christian because I'm thinking you have to believe in Jesus to be saved Uh, what about all those people that came before Jesus those would include his people as well Hebrews chapter 9 would say Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So it's eternal life. Since a death has occurred, that would be his death, that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. We could go to other texts, but I for sure always go to Hebrews chapter 9. Even those who were, were transgressors under the era of the old covenant. It's his death, his work that accomplishes a redemption for them as well. I don't want to make light of it, that they're saved on credit or something like that, um, but you get the idea. In anticipation, right? Just like we're on the other side of the cross, we're not living when he's living, so how could it benefit us? Well, it's already accomplished. It comes to us, and we understand more than they understood, but they were saved by faith as well. Read Genesis 12, Genesis 15. Read Romans chapter 4. David justified by faith. Abraham justified by faith. So, if it helps you, hope it does. I want to go to other places and talk more about this, but we probably shouldn't. Isn't it great? Isn't it great to learn things? And I, I love learning these things because I think, you know what? I, I, I used to not think that. I just didn't know. And then you learn it and you're like, oh man, it's not because I'm so smart, but, but by God's grace, I, I learned something so I want to tell other people, right? It's like somebody said, I, I'm like a beggar, t- beggar telling other beggars where to find food. Not talking down, but it's like, hey, you got to check this out. This is awesome. Name him Jesus. Joshua. The ultimate Joshua, because he will save his people from foreign intruders, no, from their sins. Yes. Victory in Jesus. Alright, let's move on. Let's go on to number uh, verse 22. Having a little too much excitement here today. Having a charismatic moment. If I fall over, it's not good. When I was in seminary, we, t- we took our theology professor um, to a Benny Hinn healing crusade. Just to take him. Um, he'd written some critical things against the charismatic movement. And uh, we thought, butter up the professor, we all want better grades. So we're like, hey, professor, you wanna go see Benny Hinn with us today in Anaheim? Uh, you know, or whatever. So we all got in the van, we went there. and He was real stern, kind of looking, had the kind of octagonal glasses, a big beard, looked like he was, you know, Charles Hodge or something from Princeton in the 1700s or whenever. And he said, well, men, if I fall over, you fail my class. <laughs> so when Benny tried to slay him in the spirit, we just held him up and we all got A's. It didn't happen. By the way, we, all, we were all laughing, going to dinner, going on our way there. And isn't this going to be interesting to see this? And thousands and thousands of people there. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. It was so depressing and so sad to watch all of the buses of people in wheelchairs and on crutches and with who knows what else leaving after no better than when they came and their pastors leading them. It was sickening and sad and scandalous. How did we get there? I have no idea. But I need to get back. You know what? That professor I had believed the same thing I'm teaching you this morning about Matthew 21:21. He came to save his people from their sins. And I'm thankful for that. Verse 22 says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That would be Isaiah the prophet. Chapter 7, verse 14, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Again, think purpose throughout all of redemptive history fulfilled in Christ. So that's why we're going to quote Isaiah, because there's always been a plan, even before time began. And that's why we can have prophecies that are legitimate, and we can have fulfillment in Christ that is legitimate. And he's saying, this fulfills that. This is that. Call him Emmanuel. God with us, uniquely with us. I don't think people went around calling Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, Emmanuel, Christ, Joshua probably not the idea we don't we don't have that example of him being called that he's called Jesus Matthew likes to call him Jesus sometimes if you want to know who he is he's Jesus Christ because he's the Messiah but this Emmanuel doesn't seem to be the proper name as much as it is the designation it is his name in this sense because he is the presence of God because he's none other than the God man God with us in the unique extraordinary way It reminds me of Jesus referring to himself as the temple, the dwelling of God, okay? He's with his people. You want God with you like never, ever, ever before? It's in Christ. It's in Christ. Oh, we're running out of time. It's not like I haven't done this before. I've done this for 20-some years. Like it's the same every time, right? Pastors are, you should pray for pastors. They're sinners, right? Ever so quickly to, to appreciate it though. The word can be translated young woman of a marry, marryable age who would be expected to be a virgin or it could be translated virgin. And, and back in the day, not that long ago, people had a, had a total fit over translations that would translate Isaiah 714 as young woman. Because it has to be virgin, and you know what? Some of the translators might have been theological liberals, so fair enough. But I want to say it's perfectly fine to translate Isaiah 7:14, young woman, who is expected to be a virgin. Because when we get to Matthew 1, he clearly points out what kind of young woman it is. And it's a young woman who's not been known by her husband, It is a young woman who is a virgin. It clears any kind of lack of clarity up. And as a matter of fact, I don't personally believe in two virgin births. I don't think the child born in Isaiah's time was virgin conceived. She would have been a young woman who would have been, the child would be, born to her symbolic of God's unique blessing God's unique presence God's unique intervention I believe that and I doubt she was a virgin when she conceived the baby but all of this is meant to prefigure to anticipate the unique extraordinary blessing of God not only is Mary a young woman she is a young woman who absolutely most certainly without any question is a virgin The young woman from Isaiah chapter 7 would be a type of Mary if you want to do it that way. Or her offspring, and there's debate about this. Just ask Mike Holloway, whatever his view is, is my view. (laughs) (laughs) Got to support the staff. (laughs) Lots of scholars think it was even Isaiah's son based upon chapter 8 and the way things undo. But the the, the point is, the child is not the Messiah, the Emmanuel. But he was an Emmanuel. And if we have a God who has a plan before time begins and he's unfolding the drama of redemption, we can say, that child was a type of Christ. Special blessing from God, special anointing from God, even when the people were sinful, because that's when the promise happens in Isaiah 7. Ultimate one. Ultimate God with us. Virgin born. It's pretty amazing. Remember, I told you earlier, extraordinary can't be ordinary. It shouldn't even surprise us that we would say, oh, virgin born. Well, he he better come from some unique kind of birth if he's going to be this one. Well, let's move on. would want to say more, but let's move on to verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's not end here, but let's make sure we see the Bible doesn't teach the perpetual virginity of Mary. Okay? Because by the way, sex isn't bad. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In the context of marriage, it's actually referred to as a positive. So the Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus, as we're going to see in Matthew's account, had siblings, and they weren't virgin conceived. I don't know anybody who believes that. So we don't have perpetual virginity. And also, you should know this. You should know that what we've not been talking about today is the immaculate conception. Okay, That's not what we've been talking about. That's a Catholic doctrine that says Mary was untouched by the stain of human sin. It had to do with her conception, not the conception of Jesus. So we can call it the Immaculate Conception, but if we mean the Immaculate Conception in the Roman Catholic sense, this is not that. This is not the account of Mary's conception. This is the account of Jesus' conception. And some of my Catholic friends actually think that the Immaculate Conception, the Catholic dogma is actually the virgin birth of Jesus or the virgin conception of Jesus and it's not. So if you're looking for a way to spice things up at the dinner table this Christmas, talk to your Catholic friends and in love and kindness say, I was learning about the Immaculate Conception the other day. What do you know about it? It's not what they think it is. Again, Mary found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's end on this. Let's end on a positive note. Mary was blessed by God uniquely, extraordinarily. Young women had been waiting for that sort of experience in one way or another since Genesis 3. Since Eve gave birth. Is this going to be the one? Mary experienced significant grace from God. Okay? We're thankful for that. But remember, she also worships God for providing her with the Savior. So we want to follow her example in that way. Okay? I'll end on this. It's a funny story. A friend of mine, we'll call him Steve because that's his name. He's a pastor friend of mine. We were talking about what Christmas sermons to preach years and years ago and all this and I wanted to to do the Magnificat and so I said, you know, I I preached the text, uh, uh, the Magnificat text and I called it the worship of Mary. I thought it was pretty creative, right? It's her worship, not our worshiping her, okay? The worship of Mary. And so he's new at his church where he's pastoring, and so whoever is to blame, we won't name them because we don't want to do that. Um, whoever was in charge of the church sign and putting it up, you know, Monday or whatever, put on the church sign. This is for the Christmas service. He's a new pastor. Worship Mary. <laughs> I kid you not. So, he drove in the lot on Sunday morning and wanted to die. (laughs) They didn't fire him for it. Why are we ending on that note? Let's pray and then we'll be done. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we can laugh about things. Um, we're, We're thankful for that. We're thankful also to know that you use us. You use human beings to communicate the truth to people. And it's not because we're so smart or know so much. It's because you've made your word clear enough that we can say what it says. And so do give us opportunities to speak kindly and truthfully to those around us. Uh, The only reason any of us in this room are Christians, we acknowledge before you, Lord, is because someone told us the truth about Jesus. And so help us to be men and women and boys and girls who are like that as well. In Jesus' name, amen.